This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including Adam Rutherford's Creation, How Science is Reinventing Life Itself, and Mario Livio's Brilliant Blunders, From Darwin to Einstein, Colossal Mistakes by Great Scientists That Changed Our Understanding of Life in the Universe. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on September 30th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. On August 7th, Scientific American and Macmillan Science and Education hosted a summit called Learning in the Digital Age at Google's New York City offices. As part of the summit, Editor-in-Chief Mariette DiCristina sat down with science aficionado and longtime scientific American, Alan Alda. I know I don't actually have to introduce the man who's um, sitting next to me, but I'm just so thrilled to have the privilege of, of sitting here and talking a bit. I, I want to just frame, and you probably all know this, but... I like to say things out loud. It's one of the things editors-in-chief like to do. So I'm going to tell you just a little bit about him. We're going to have a chat, and then I'm going to invite you to join in the conversation as we've been doing during the day today. So obviously, Alan Alda, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Um, you know, Alan Alda has made communicating science to the public into something of an art form in and of itself, which I love. And on top of that, he's expressed a passion for all of us about helping to do that communication that I think has been really inspiring, certainly to me personally, and I think to everybody in, in the room. But let me tell you a couple of the concrete ways, just to refresh some memories. So he was host of Scientific American Frontiers on PBS from 1993 to 2005 and interviewed many hundreds and hundreds of scientists, getting to draw them out on uh, the wonderful research they were doing and getting them, more importantly, out of the sort of lecture hall idea that people have about scientists to see the incredible work that they do. He um, thus inspired Stony Brook University to create a center for communicating science, which has this sort of the unique mission of doing that with scientists themselves. A lot of the other universities, such as the one I went to, focus on communicating to the public of public communicators, like journalists like me, but this is unique, working with the scientists directly. And in uh, 2011, and then subsequently, uh, Mr. Alda initiated the Flame Challenge, where he harnessed, which we'll talk about a little bit, um, the, the rare sort of challenge of trying to explain how a flame actually works, what it is, to 11-year-olds, and then had hundreds of 11-year-olds do the judging, which I think is Thousands. Amazing. Thousands. Yeah. Um, more than 800 scientists participated in that challenge, and then did another one on something equally familiar and mysterious on the nature of time, um, which was also wonderful. 
He's won seven Emmy Awards and six Golden Globes, created wonderful characters in movies that I think we've all seen, written them himself, um, directed himself. He's the first person to win an Emmy in three categories for acting, directing, and writing. And in 2005, I love this stat. I, I know I've seen it, but I, I think everybody should hear it. He had the distinction of publishing, at the same time, a best-selling book called Never Have Your Dog Stuffed and Other Things I've Learned of being nominated for an Oscar, a Tony, and an Emmy, all in the same year. Isn't that amazing? I'm, I'm so amazing. It's just... <laughs> Is he, do you ever have this? <laughs> I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. Yeah, how did you get here? <laughs> and if his work with um, helping scientists talk to the public wasn't enough, he's actually played a scientist himself on Broadway in QED, where he played um, the physicist Richard Feynman. So for all of these reasons, I, I can't tell you how, uh, maybe you can tell, how excited, I don't have to tell you, you can tell, how excited I am Thank you. to um, to thank and congratulate Alan Alda for his lifetime of achievement in communicating and advancing um, science to the public. And um, this is actually the very first Scientific American Award for this wonderful lifetime achievement. No. And I was afraid to lift it and maybe drop it on this poor man. So <laughs> congratulations. That's so good. Thank you. Thank you. This is wonderful. You don't know how much this means to me. Because I, since I was a boy, I've been interested in science. When I was six, I would, I would sneak into my mother's bedroom and try to mix her face powder with toothpaste to see if it would blow up. <laughs> and, and, I, for, and I was always putting things together to experiment. Fortunately, I was too short to reach the shelf where the explosive things really were, you know. But I, when, in the fifties, when, when C.P. Snow was talking about the two cultures of the arts and science, I didn't know who he was, but I was living his lecture because I was still interested in science. But I thought, as the culture taught me, that it was true that you were either interested in science or the arts. And I knew I was going to be in the arts and I didn't study science which I have regretted all my life since. But in my 20s, I started reading Scientific American. <laughs> Every issue cover to cover until today. You know how many years that is? It's, it's about 112 years. <laughs> That's good because Scientific American is 168 now. There you go. I know. And it's, it's the second, is the second oldest or the, the, old, oldest, the, oldest, the oldest science oldest, magazine? 1845. Yeah, great. So, uh, and then I started doing Scientific American Frontiers, even closer connected to the magazine. And then one day, one of the stories we did on the show, you were covering in the magazine. It was about 3D digital um, modeling. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a picture on the cover of Scientific American of my face modeled digitally. I had become a Scientific American cover boy. You know, and I thought that was the highlight of my life. And now this... I'm, it's, it really means a great deal to me. Thank you. The original Scientific American it means a great deal <laughs> yeah. to me. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, thank you. That was a wonderful story. Let's talk a little bit about, you got, You were in Scientific American Frontiers, and you've done many subsequent things uh, yeah. on PBS. And we have we have another we have series shows, of the, right. the same producer, uh, Graham Chedd, of Scientific American Frontiers. And I got together and did a show that's going to be on PBS in September two one-hour shows about the the intersection of new brain science and the justice system, and it's called Brains on Trial, and it really is fascinating. So many um, 
so many new things that are learned about that, that are now known about the brain and in so many ways how they're interacting with the justice system already and how they might in the future and possibly too soon before they're ready to be useful and fair. I love this confluence that I'm seeing through flame challenge. We know it, but we don't know it. Yeah, Time, right. We know it, but we don't know it. Then brain, we all have this illusion that we, we know it. Right. But we don't know it. Well, we certainly use it, and sometimes not enough, but we, <laughs> we, we use it and act like it's, uh, it's like when you get in your car and you don't know how it works, but you expect to get there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it, it's, it's really amazing how much more is being known. But you're right. The things that are, Things that we think we know that we can learn more about. That's a fascinating area. And, and the, the flame challenge, you know, when Ira was talking, he made me realize we could, we could have even further reach with them, um, social networking because the first year we did it, we had 800 scientists who submitted entries on what a, what, what a flame is so that an 11 year old could understand it. And we had 6,000, um, kids in schools around the world who were judging those entries and including an Aboriginal class in Australia. I mean, they were all over the world. And this year, again, hundreds of scientists, but 10,000 kids, 12, 20,000 kids this year. 20,000. Amazing. And, and it's so we could get even more kids if we connect them up um, with them. Um, Twitter and stuff like that, probably. Yeah, we're now making notes on this. <laughs> yeah. good. Good to, also, we That's have uh, Christine O'Connell who yeah, runs the Flame Challenge. <laughs> so, um, let's turn a little bit to getting the scientists in directly communicating science to the yeah. public and what you're doing at the center. You know, that means a great deal to me, and that, it was a dream of mine starting about ten years ago. Um, Maybe even more than that, because as I was finishing up Scientific American Frontiers, I realized that we had developed something that was unusual as a way to communicate science. I wasn't inviting them to make little lectures to the camera. On the contrary, every time I caught them doing that, I'd pull them back and mm-hmm. sometimes physically pull them back and say, I'm trying to understand this and I don't get it. And I, I don't get that language and I don't get You know, the tone of voice wasn't communicative. It was very formal and stilted. But when they, when they really realized that I needed to know because I was curious what their work was all about and I could get excited about it and they could see me get excited, the better I understood it. Then they changed and they became more communicative and they were, their tone was warmer. The look on their face was more excited. Their humor came out more. The real them came out. And the jargon fell away and they were talking in plain language. Well, I, I thought after that, scientists could be among the best communicators of their own work if they could speak in their own voice with their own authenticity and if their own passion for their work could show up. I mean, there's nobody more passionate about their work than scientists in the whole, in the whole world. One of the people I, one of the 700 people I interviewed was a woman who studied a certain kind of spider. And to be there in the morning when the spider woke up, she slept out in the desert on a lava bed every night for seven years. Now, is that passionate or what? <laughs> and I mean, that you can't get more passionate than that. And I, I thought, what could we do to help scientists have that personal tone, that communicative connection to the audience when they don't have somebody like me pulling it out of them? 
And I thought, why don't we train scientists all during their science education, not just for a couple of minutes, a couple of hours, you know, where media training, media, where you teach them, give them two hours of how to talk in sound bites. That's not the thing. The thing is to have this communicative skill. And it's like an art that you have to teach them. You have to transform them a little bit and they want to be transformed. So I helped start the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook, Stony Brook University. And and we make use of something that I learned early in my life that changed me, that transformed me. And now we can transform scientists with it. And that's improvisation. We teach them improvisation, which is not making things up. And it's not comedy. It's learning step by step in a rigorous way, in a rule-driven way, to make contact with the other player. And then when they turn to the audience and talk to them, they're making contact with them as real people. They look them right in the eye when they talk to them. And they can see if the people are getting it. And if the people aren't getting it, they can change what they're saying. So it's really a two-way street, the way it was with me and the scientists on Scientific American Frontiers. And they're eating it up. And now we've, we've made, uh, done workshops and presentations in about 75 other in scientific institutions. Other s- universities are, uh, beginning to affiliate with us. So it's very exciting. And I'm, I, uh, my dream is coming true. I think that I love your dream. Yeah. Um, would you tell the, uh, audience what you were just telling me about the actors who you also were? <laughs> for, for the first time in years, I was asked to run a, uh, uh, be a, run a master class in Wisconsin at the, uh, Lundfontein House, and they had 10 actors who were some of the best actors in the country with, with 20 or 30 years' experience. And I was teaching them improv for a whole week, and they kept asking me, are we better than the scientists? <laughs> <laughs> and in some cases, it took them a while to get as good as the scientists. But they were, but, but because, one thing is good about teaching improv to scientists, it's, it's rules that they have to learn, and they're very good at sticking to the rules. And you're not allowed to act and they don't come in with a, 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 you know, a tendency toward acting. They just have to play according to the rules. And when they do, the real them comes out and it's, it's so engaging. And they also, we have specific games to play that train them in how to say their story, tell their story about their work in many different ways to different kinds of people. And it's really exciting. It's exciting to see them shift like that. We have a, a group of the first group of young scientists that I worked with three, four years ago, I guess. And we've gone out doing demonstrations. And, and at, on the spur of the moment, once I, I called them, here they are, the Bunsen burners. And now <laughs> this original group of Bunsen burners are, are, are advocates. They're our evangelists. They're just great. <laughs> I love that. And also, I like the virtuous circle you've created because now you have evidence for the other scientists who are coming in that it works. That's right. <laughs> and they like yeah. that too, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> let's circle back to the flame challenge just for a minute. <clears throat> now, we talked about 11-year-olds. We didn't tell people why. Oh, yeah. Well, when I was 11, it's interesting. It comes from a personal story, and a personal story is always a good way to start. Um when I was 11, I was fascinated with the flame at the end of a candle. And I thought about this for several days. What is it? What's going on in, in that flame? Because it had these strange properties. It gave off light. It was hot. You could put your finger through it. If you did it fast enough, it wouldn't burn. What What is all this? And I hadn't seen anything like it anywhere else in the world. So I said to my teacher, what's, what's a flame? What's going on in there? And she thought for a second and she said, it's oxidation. 
and that's it. <laughs> and I thought she, uh, she just called it by a different name. It's like saying uh, flame. That's Fred. You know? <laughs> and I, I never learned what a flame was. And, and it wasn't until I was writing a, 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 a guest editorial for Science Magazine. And I started with this story and ended with proposing a contest. And then we realized when I, when I shared it with the, the, the Center for Communicating Science, we realized we could make the 11 year olds the judges. And then we got this great bonus because the whole idea was not to teach kids about the flame, but to teach scientists how hard it is to communicate in words so simple yet accurate that an 11 year old can understand it and actually have something that he didn't have or she didn't have before uh, intellectually. But the bonus we got was that by involving the kids, they got so excited about this that they, they all, they kept reporting that they were more interested in science now than they had been before. And we have videos of them judging the scientists' entries. And they are so serious about it, so, so smart, so, uh, so creative and saying, you know, that one kid said this great thing. He said, you know, it's, it's, it's okay that they're funny and they're, and because they were trying to appeal to 11 year olds. So some of them were trying to be comical, you know, he said, it's okay to be funny, but you know, they, they have to give us information. <laughs> said, this kid said, we're 11 year olds. We're not seven. So they're great, and they're, they're, that's that's a, a great interaction that we've we've begun, and we do it every year. Now we're sponsored by the American Chemical Society and the AAAS, and we're we're very very excited about how it's going, and it keeps growing every year. I think that's so amazing about science. How if you touch it, it comes and touches yeah, you. That's right, and rather permanently too. I think it, it is because as you as you were saying before, kids are scientific from the beginning. And yet you have to meet them where they are. This, this thing of talking to the audience as if they're really there and really seeing them means you have to really see the kid when you talk to the kid. And you, you can't be so drunk on your own knowledge that you don't know what it's like not to know what you know. Because some people have called that the curse of knowledge where you have to understand what and remember what it's like not to know it at the depth you know it. I, there's a wonderful example of this that I lived through. I was on vacation with my family and we were in a tropical resort and my grandson, who was about six or seven at the time, was walking down a path with me and we saw this tree that neither of us had ever seen before. And it was on this skinny trunk. There were all these spikes sticking out of it. It looked like the back of a dinosaur, all these triangular spikes, really sharp things. And he said, look at that. Why is that tree like that? And I thought, oh, this is so great. I can talk about evolution with them and teach them about evolution, how the tree got that way. And we sat on the ground and we had a conversation about evolution for 45 minutes, 45 minutes of this. And next day he was swimming with his cousin and he asked her a question. And she said, that sounds like a science question. Why don't you ask grandpa? He said, I'm not making that mistake again. <laughs> you got to meet them where they are, you know. <laughs> Okay, hard to follow that one up. Um, perhaps uh, some of you might have some questions you'd like to ask Alan Alda as well. Can you tell us some of those rules you taught to the scientists? 
Well, the rules are specifically with regard to improvising. Now, first of all, in general, uh, principles that we try to convey are to speak in, 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 in everyday language and to become aware of jargon. Very often jargon is so embedded in, in, in the insider that they don't realize it's jargon. And interestingly, it extends even further. I've, I've found that very often when people are talking rapidly about their work, the most important term to their work is one that they mumble or rush through because they've said it so many thousands of times. And that's the term that's probably hardest for us to understand. We've maybe never heard it before. And not only does it need to be said slowly, it needs to be explained. But the the rules I'm talking about are the rules of improvisation that were devised by this woman called Viola Spolin about 60 or 70 years ago. And they're called theater games. And, and she has a book called Improvisation for the Theater. And they really are pretty much only taught well by somebody who's been trained to teach the games. But uh, what they do is by, by, by following these rules, for instance, simple rules would be like uh, having to observe the other person so that you – well, for instance, if the other person deals with something in the environment – you have to see it and deal with the same thing in the environment while you're talking about something else. It becomes so difficult because the environment is made out of space. It's all imaginary. So it becomes so difficult to figure out what the person is doing and to make that same contact that your mind is not on what you're saying. It's not on how you're doing. It's not on whether people wonder if you're fat or whatever. Your mind is only on solving this problem and in doing this thousands of times, pretty soon you become accustomed to dealing with something outside yourself and especially dealing with the other person and not worrying about you. And you get accustomed to this flight that takes place when you accept the words that are coming to you, accept the ideas that are coming to you. You don't have to read them. You don't have to memorize it verbatim. You can, you know your work so well that you feel confident you can talk about it in a human interactive way. So the rules are very specific to the games, and it wouldn't take too long to win to all the games. You remind me, actually, of a, of a time when I was about to do a live interview with a, uh, a young scientist who was just starting off, yeah. and he was trembling before oh, the interview. Yeah. And I said, you're going to be great. You know all this stuff cold. He said, what you don't understand is that until this moment, until this interview, everything I've done has been about acquiring the jargon to mm. share with other people yeah. who will then judge me on that yeah. facility. And now I have to learn how to do it in a different way. That's why my dream has been to teach communication to scientists all through the science education and not just a quick thing at the end because you really have to learn in a way this other language, this other way of communicating. Because for very good reasons, science is taught as in, as a way in the process of teaching science, scientists are taught for very good reasons not to bring in emotion, not to bring in their personality. I wouldn't want to cross a bridge that was built on the cult of personality. I would, I want to cross a bridge that was done with good engineering, solid, you know, emotion free engineering. But when you're talking about your work and you're trying to get other people interested in it enough to fund it, 
or to just be interested in it and get the joy of, of uh, the joy of experiencing it as you, you get it. Then you got to talk in a personal way. You got to, you got to let your emotions come out. But mo- you know, it doesn't mean you have to get so emotionally have a nervous breakdown in front of the audience. You want to, you want to be able though to evoke emotion in them. Let them see what an, an amazing, wondrous place the universe is and especially the part of it you're focusing on. That, that's, that's why I read Scientific American cover to cover because it's full of wonder. It just makes me so happy to see smart people's brains at work. That's one of the real joys of nature, just to watch other people figure out nature. And, and, and then, and then the more you learn, the more fun it is to hear your own wheels turning, cranking and clicking and squeaking. <laughs> um, another question. Here's somebody over here. Oh, thank here you. comes a mic. It's a pleasure to see you. And what a trek from MASH to science. I mean, that's really quite a journey. <laughs> um, I wondered if you have any programs out at Stony Brook for young children, you know, teenagers, anything out there? To, 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 uh, transfer science to teen. Yes, teen. Yes. Um, do we, but Christine can, Christine is, is at Stony Brook. So this is Christine O'Connell. Hi, everyone. Um, we, we have a few programs, um, one of which we started, we piloted this past year in teaching graduate students and working with them to develop presentations to go to local high schools and talk about their research in that sense. But we're really focused on teaching graduate students and scientists how to do that and helping provide those forums for them to go out and talk to kids, high school students, um, even community members. Yeah, I forgot that. That's a wonderful program. So that's like how kids start out as uh, young scientists and then somewhere along the way we lose them. Well, if we've got graduate students who have been trained in this personal approach, trained to make contact with kids, and they go to schools and actually make contact with them, then there's a chance that we will not lose them so much uh, at that stage. And then there's another chance we have to not lose them that we're at work on at, at Stony Brook, which is when undergraduates who are not in science are invited to take courses in science to see if they might be interested in a career in science, they're traditionally exposed to teaching assistants who know the material but don't have any training in communication or teaching. And often, but way too often, undergraduates who are not uh, yet interested in science lose interest in science and drop out of the class. And we may be losing scientists that way. And what we're doing now is training teaching assistants specifically in these techniques of communication. And we're, we seem so far getting great results. They're, they're really, we're getting really good reports back on this. So that's another chance not to lo- have them lose interest. I also could just point really quickly, although pardon the shameless plug, on scientificamerican.com, we have free activities for parents and their kids that are science inquiry-based things. They're called Bring Science Home. It's off our homepage. Also, we have a program called A Thousand Scientists in a Thousand Days, which we actually have a couple of thousand scientists signed up for who will visit the classroom and come in and talk about science. And then we feature citizen science programs, including one called whale.fm, which is about listening to the music of the whale calls, where you can make science happen with your kids. And, you know, there are also these um, um – a g- group community, I forget the exact term for it, uh, where, where you can enter, uh, a site. 
I don't know if you, I used to promote this on the Scientific American Frontiers website. Uh, you can enter a site and help, um, map the surface of Mars and that kind of thing, or you can, they're just wonderful sites. And, and, uh, there must be a dozen or two dozen of them, maybe more now. And with that kids can really, I used to have fun. I was helping map the surface of Mars and I thought it uh, just was so thrilling to know that. It is thrilling. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about before about humans collaborating. Yeah, right, right. right. Getting creative minds together to do great things. And, and, the, and the more the more you do, the more interested you get in doing it. So even if you do something minor on a website like uh, contributing to the SETI mm-hmm. uh, thing, is there life on other planets? I don't know if they still are doing that. But that you're involved in something scientific and you know you're involved in the community that's doing that. And we were talking before about what herd animals we are and how important it is to know you're a part of a community. You were going to say so something? There's one question over here, I think, probably the last one. Okay. I, yeah, I'm Steve Mursky from Scientific American. If you're not sick of telling the story, I thought this audience would enjoy the conversation you had with the surgeon in Chile just before your <laughs> operation. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't tell that story. This is going to go out somewhere, right? It's going to, it, yeah. yeah. I don't tell that story <laughs> in, in public unless I'm at a talk I give where I'm raising a huge amount of money for the Center for Communicating Science. It's it's such a good story. I don't want it to be a rerun when I tell it for for the benefit of of. of you know, I mean, if you all could come up with a couple of hundred thousand dollars, it's a really good story. It's a good. That's a good crowd activity. I think we could all do. All right, maybe one other really quick one. Then I yeah. there's somebody in the front here. Thank you very much. Really, really interesting, um, interesting conversation. So you talked about meeting the kids where they are. Um, and, um, kids today are growing up in an internet age. And, you know, my son, who is 14 years old, is growing up in an age where all of his communications and his interactions are through his iPhone and the computer and the iPad. Um, and then I see scientists, uh, in, even in our own organization, who are actually, actually not digitally very savvy. So they don't know how to communicate science through these new media. And kids are using new media more and more to actually learn. So how do we address that challenge? How do we teach scientists who are not digitally savvy to actually communicate in a, you know, digital world? Well, we do have courses at, at Stony Brook University specifically for scientists to learn that in that area, uh, how to use new media. And, um, I wouldn't, I, I don't teach that class, so I wouldn't presume to give you a rundown of what's taught, but it, it is possible to train them. But again, I really w- would suggest that it's, it's not something like all of communication in science. It's not something that you can just give a few tips on. You know, I mean, they used to say, if you're talking to an audience, vary the rate of speech, uh, use your hands for gestures. This is all external stuff. What we do is work on on things at a deeper level so that all of these other things are automatic. And you, your speech will vary if you're really talking to people, if you're really making contact with them. And And there are many things about using new media that while I won't pretend I know anything about it, uh, can be taught and taught in an organized way over time so so that it's actually learned rather than just being exposed to. I just reminded myself of something else and then I forgot it. This is a wonder. We ought to study that. <laughs> 
I think probably, I think we should study that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think probably this is a good, a good point to conclude about our human connections, about uh, reaching the kids where they live, about the, I love the uh, turn of the emotion-free engineering, but also the passion of science that yeah. ignites yeah. us through yeah. things like the flame challenge and so on. And um, I wanted to thank uh, our wonderful speakers, you terrific participants, our lovely hosts at Google, and especially Alan Alda, who well, made my, I think, life <laughs> <laughs> as the editor of Scientific American. Thank you all. It's really been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to look in your faces while, yeah. and while we had this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. That's great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You recall that Alda mentioned a program for a PBS called Brains on Trial. The two episodes of Brains on Trial aired earlier in September, but they are available in their entirety at www.pbs.org for free. And Alan Alda's two memoirs, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed and Other Things I've Learned, and Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself, are both available at audible.com, read by Alan Alda himself. Remember the story I asked Alda to tell and he declined? Well, he spills those beans in Never Have Your Dog Stuffed. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can watch videos of the entire summit, Learning in the Digital Age. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Mm-hmm.